Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for being here. How awesome is it to start with baptism? Let's go. Hello. Come on. Man, what a great opportunity we had. You know, we are in this series today called Jesus People. Let's all say that together. Jesus People. Yeah, and we're in this series because we are a Jesus church made up of Jesus people trying to tell everybody the Jesus story. And as we looked at this, this, uh, as we looked at this series, there's three questions that we kind of have wrapped it around, things that can kind of help us. You know, what does it actually mean to be a Jesus people? Like, what does that mean? Who are Jesus people? Like, how do they think? What are their priorities? What are they, you know, what, how do they handle relationships? How do they handle their money? Like, what does it mean to be a Jesus people? And then the second thing is, why would I want to be a Jesus people? <laughs> like, and then, and then thirdly, does it, does it make any difference to be a Jesus people? And so we've been looking at our cultural statements as a church, just those things that make Stone Creek Stone Creek, those things that make us Jesus people and kind of unpacking those. Um, we started out a couple of weeks ago with the great commandment, love God, love people, and how great are we at the great commandment. And the one that we want to unpack today is called give my best. It's called give my best. Like, have you noticed that we're a culture that gives our best? Have you noticed this? If you haven't traveled, you may not know how amazing the bubble is that we live in. Hello, somebody? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Man, we, we live in some of the best areas. We have some of the best shopping. Um, we have some of the best restaurants. We have some of the best roads. We have some of the best schools. Um, we tear down perfectly good houses to make better houses. Hello? Like, like we live, we love to give our best. Listen, we teach our kids to give our best. How many parents in the house today? Like, you're always, hey, just give your best. And some of you, you know, are P90X fans. Hey, do your best, forget the rest, right? Man, we, we want our kids to do their best no, no matter what that best is. If it's an A, that's great. If it's a B, try harder. Is that right? Uh, we want our kids to do our best. We're a people that does our best. I mean, we're a, we're a group full of business owners and teachers who help kids give their best and doctors and nurses and builders and real estate agents and um, executives and CEOs and CFOs and C-3POs and all the, all the things that go with that. We, we understand best. You can just ride down the road. And, and why would it be that we would ever expect that we would give less than our best to Jesus. Amen. Like, why would we not focus, be intentional around giving our best to the one who gave it all for us? And so today, here's the question to kind of frame up the day. How, how can I be the greatest version of me? Man, how can I be the greatest version of me? I mean, there's something in all of us that wants to be at least the greatest version of me. I mean, you may, you may, you may not think that you can be the next Warren Buffett. That may not be aspirational for you or the next Steve Jobs to change the world with a piece of machinery. Um, but you want to be the best at who you are, at who God's created you to be. At the end of the day, you want to know, did I get my priorities right? Did I, did I spend my money on the things that mattered? Did I get my time? I mean, did I think about what was important? I and mean, did I treat people the way I, that they needed to be treated? How can I be the greatest version of me that God has created me to be? And so we're going to unpack that today. And I'm going to let you in on a fundamental truth that Jesus people know. Fundamental truth. If you want to be the greatest version of you, you've got to learn to give your best away. So let, let me say that again. If you want to be the greatest version of who you are and of everything that God has for you, of the potential that God has planted deep inside your soul. And you've got to learn and focus and work at giving our best away. So let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 
today, Mark chapter 9. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, Mark was a friend of Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was an eyewitness to Jesus. Um, Mark's mom had a house that was kind of the base of operations for Jesus at some points, especially the early church. Um, when they started, they would operate out of Mark's mom's house. And so Mark knew a lot. He had seen a lot. He experienced a lot, especially by the time he had written down these particular um, narratives of Jesus' life, these experiences that he had with Jesus. And these were the things that bubbled up to the top for him. And so in Mark chapter 9, we're going to start out um, uh, in, in Mark chapter 9, yeah, over in verse 33 um, today. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Now, Jesus is, uh, they're kind of on the road. They're traveling. They're on a road trip, which they walked on. And so they're walking, and they're going back to a place called Capernaum. Now, one thing to remember about Capernaum, you probably don't know a lot about it, um, but this was the place where Jesus did the most miracles, Okay, he did the most miracles, performed the most powerful events. And so as they're going back into Capernaum, the, the disciples are probably thinking, this is it. Pomp and circumstance. There's going to be a parade for us. They're going to know he's coming, man, because he's important. He's done some great things here, man. It's going to be incredible, right? And what's in it for us? It's kind of what we're going to see they're asking today. But it says in verse 33, it says, they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Now, 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 now when Jesus says, what were you discussing? You know what? He already knows. <laughs> and they knew. Have you ever been somewhere and you walked into a conversation and they stopped talking? What did that mean? They were talking about you. And so Jesus, all of a sudden, the disciples, they get quiet. They keep silent. And it says, on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Like, how does that conversation go? Well, John, I'm smarter than you are. John's like, well, my mama's prettier than your mama. I mean, I, I don't know how this goes. Like, I, I don't know what the greatest meant for them, but they definitely were trying to figure out, hey, what's the pecking order when it comes to how we're going to re be received with all these people who are going to be applauding Jesus? And it says this. He says, he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Hey, if, if you're going to be first, Got to be last. Now, 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 just a little quick teaching on that. I can remember when my kids were little, uh, we would try to teach them this. And so we'd break out some candy or cake or something. They're saying, I'm going last, I'm going last, I'm going last. That's still them trying to be first, right? <laughs> That's not, you miss the point when that happens. And, and sometimes we can do that. But Jesus is saying, hey, this is a mindset you have to adopt. It's a mentality that you have to learn how to move through life with. He says, if you would be first, you must be last of all. And then he took a child and he put the child in the midst of them. And he took, him in, he took the child in his arms and he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And so Jesus turns this idea of greatness on its head. He turns it upside down based on how the world works. Now, now what I love about this is Jesus uses this in, to, to get into this launching pad of a new way of living. They still hadn't gotten it. And it said that Jesus sat down. And, and you know, like if you were to, if, when I sit down or maybe at your house, when you sit down to have a conversation, it means business, doesn't it? Or, or if someone calls you and says, hey, are you sitting down? What does that mean? It's either bad or it may be good, but it's really darn important, isn't it? Is really important. And so this is how important it was to Jesus. He sat down so he could teach them this teaching about who would be first and who would be last. If anyone would be first, they have to go last, Jesus said. If anyone would be first. If you want to achieve the greatness that God has put in you, you have to learn what it means to go last. You have to learn what it means to serve other people. You have to learn what it means to put other people first. Now, now this is not the way our country works. Hello? Have you noticed this? 
You know how I'm first? It's my brand. I'm going to start my brand. I'm going to get on my reality TV show. I'm going to pump my chest. I'm going to get in front of people. I'm going to be sure that everybody else is left in my wake. This is the dog-eat-dog world of the United States of America. I know how to be first. As Ricky Bobby said, if you ain't first, you're last. It's like the Navy SEAL says, what do you call the person who's second? First loser. And what about this one? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Stephen Gibbs said that. More than once. Man, we know what greatness is like, but what, what, look what Jesus does. is He gives him this object left lesson with these children. In verse 36, it says, He took a child, and he put the child in their midst, and he said, he, he took him in his arms, and he said, Whoever receives one child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And now in our culture, to receive a child is a thing of honor, and we love kids. You know, one of my grandchildren is in town this week, and everywhere we go, everybody wants to say how cute she is. But, but, but I mean, and she is. What am I wrong? Right, she is. She's amazing. She's the cutest baby ever. Um, uh, but, but, but in this culture, it wasn't how, it, what, this wasn't how children were received. Children were property. Uh, many times they weren't given names until they were two, three, four, five years old because they weren't sure they were going to live. Uh, they had no rights. They were usually brought up as slaves. So children were unimportant. Here's one, there's two points I think Jesus is making here. One of them is this. Children could do nothing for you. Children could do nothing for you. Like How good are we at being last with somebody who can do nothing for us is what Jesus is saying. Like I, I tell you what, I can serve people that can do something for me. You know, I used to wait tables. I know how that works. I was in the service industry. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to get a good tip. If I don't get a good tip, I'm out. I'm going to run you down in the parking lot because I want something. And we're good at people. Man, we're good at, we're good at investing in people and serving people as long as we think they can help us catch that next, next business deal or give us a discount on that house or uh, help us as we climb the ladder. Now, I'm not talking about networking and connecting. Of course, that's what we should do. But when we serve people with this expectation we're going to get something back, we have completely missed the point. Richard Foster said this, he said, he's a Christian author who writes a lot of books around prayer, meditation, kind of Christian spirituality. And Foster said this, the true test of a servant, the true test is how you respond when you're treated like one. It's, it's how you respond when you're treated like one. It reminds me of a story of Booker T. Washington. How many of you guys have heard of Booker T. Washington? Yeah, great educator, um, was, was the first black man to eat at the White House with Teddy Roosevelt. Founded Tuskegee University, and um, one day while he was walking through a wealthy area of town, a white woman approaches him and says, hey, I've got some wood that needs to be cut at my house. Hey, would you, would you want to come and cut wood? And he's like, sure. And so Washington goes to her house cuts the wood, takes it, stacks it on her fireplace. And as he's leaving the house, the woman's daughter comes in as he goes home. And, he sa and she says to her mom, Mom, do you know who that was? That was Booker T. Washington. Now the mom's mortified. And so she the next day goes and finds him, and she apologizes to him. And here was his response. He says, it's perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally I enjoy a little manual labor. And besides that, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. Like, that's the mentality of servanthood. So what did that woman do? She went and got some of her other wealthy friends and made a very large donation to Tuskegee University. 
Because this is the way that servanthood works, man, as we serve people. So Jesus puts a child in their midst to, to be able to highlight this fact that we should, we should serve people, even if they can't do anything for us, because it's not an activity for, for Jesus' people. It's an identity. Hello? It's not just an activity that we do. It's a person that we are. Now, now there's a second reason I think Jesus put a child in their midst. I think what Jesus was trying to point out is, hey, fellas, that's what you're acting like, <laughs> a child. So it, when it comes to spiritual growth, kind of here's the process. So you start out spiritually unresolved. You don't know God. You're spiritually dead. You're spiritually unawake, like you're in spiritual darkness, and you're trying to figure some things out. And then we make some decisions to follow Jesus, and then you become a spiritual infant. And, and you begin to know some things about Jesus. You get really excited, but, but there's a lot of things you don't know, and you say a lot of really stupid things that don't even make sense. But it's all out of a good place because you're really excited. And you just get some theology wrong. You get some practical things wrong. But you're really working hard. And then you move into what's called a spiritual child. And, and at this point, you know some things to do. You know some activities to take place in. You know some disciplines that you should be involved in. You, kinda, you know how to play the game just a little bit. But you're still very self-centered before you move into maturity. Now, when you're in that spiritual child phase, it's, it's all about you still. I don't know what kind of church you guys grew up in, but I remember growing up in a church and that there were some people that they sat in the pew in the same place in the pew every single week. You know these people? And if somebody sat in their place, was it bad, John? Was it bad? You know what I'm talking about, bro. I mean, it was bad because that was their seat. How dare a new person sit in that seat? Like some of you are like, oh, that's not how church works. That is not how church works. <laughs> you get a different seat every time. But again, it's about them. And sometimes we have that mentality, my parking spot. Right? Hey, don't add anybody to my group. Why? Because it'll mess up our holy huddle. Like, we don't want that. Man, don't, 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 don't rock my boat. And it's, it's selfish. It's all about them. But then you graduate and to being spiritually mature. And one of the key things that Jesus is saying here, one of the marks of someone who is spiritually mature is they learn what it means to go last. They don't always have to be right. They don't always have to get their way. Uh, they don't always have to have their comfort or have their idea adopted. They are just there to serve. And this is why Jesus puts a kid in the middle of them. A little example of this. A couple of weeks ago, we had an event here on our property called Back to School Bash. And we were running kids up the zip line. Now, our zip line, listen, if you think zip, zip line like backyard Bible school, you are completely wrong. It is 80 feet high, 800 feet long. It's it's a nightmare if you don't like heights, I'm just saying. And so kids are going up on, and they have to climb up a cargo net to get there. And so to climb up the cargo net, you need closed-toed shoes, closed-toed shoes. So a little kid comes, he'd signed up for a spot, all excited about getting on the zip line, but he has on flip-flops, flip-flops. So what, what to do, what to do? One of our high schoolers was actually the one harnessing them in and, hand, and taking care of it. So what she did she took off her socks and shoes and gave it to this little kid so he could go up the zip line. It tells me a couple things. She's got really small feet. <laughs> but she's not a spiritual teenager, is she? Man, spiritually mature. Uh, and this is what our, our students do. Our students serve. And one of the things that will uh, help a student as they mature in life to be young adults is when they serve in the church. Um, they are way more likely to hang on to their faith. And so they serve. Let me ask you this. When, where, and how can you go last? When, when, 
Where and how can you go last? And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, if I'm always last, then I'll never get out of the parking lot. Well, if you're thinking about that, you're completely missing the point of going last. <laughs> and I get there's orders of things, and there's times you let people go, and then sometimes it's your turn, you should go. Like, let's don't get caught up in that. But like, when, where, and how can you go last? And this is what Jesus is trying to highlight. I'm going to turn over a page to Mark chapter 10. It's a, you know, as we continue in the story of Jesus, um, there were these two brothers who were Jesus' closest followers, James and John. And James and John always wanted to be number one. So they were having this argument. And then they come to Jesus and like, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you sit on your throne, when everybody realizes who you are, when you get really important, when you get to do everything you want to do, let us be number one and number two. We want to be right next to you. Because we're the smartest, we're the baddest, we're the boldest, we have the most courage, we have the best theology. Like, listen, we want to be right next to you. And so in in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42, it says this. It says, Jesus called them to him. He says, hey, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And so what Jesus is saying, Gentile would just have been someone who was a non-Jew, someone who didn't follow God, someone who wasn't a Jesus people. He says, listen, they lord it over them all the time. They remind people who's in charge. They want to point out how great they are. They want to show that they've got the biggest bank account. They want to, they want to prove their worth by having the biggest house. Like they lord it over them. But Jesus says this, it shall not be so among you. That whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then he gives us the motivation, the grounding, the grounding for service. He says this, for even the son of man, that's how he referred to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what I love about this, Jesus doesn't say, hey, James and John, y'all are way too obsessed with being great. Like, why are you so worried about that? He doesn't say that. He actually validates this desire that God has given us to be great. Because God has placed something in us that wants to be great. Because we're made in the image of a great God. Amen, somebody? We are made in his image. And God wants us to be great. So he doesn't remove the desire for greatness. What Jesus does is reframe the definition of greatness. And he says, you know, you think it's great when you can lord it over people and they can work for you and they can do what you say and at your beck and call, they can move and and do whatever you want. No, 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 no. That's not how we operate. The way that you're great in the kingdom is upside down. My kingdom works in a different way. And when he uses the word great here, it's the word where we get our word megaphone from. Megaphone. So what Jesus is saying is if you want your life to be loud, learn what it means to go last. If you want your life to be loud, learn what it means to go last. Jesus' people know that the kingdom operates differently. And Jesus says, I didn't come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus paid it all, didn't he? All to him I owe. Now, we have different motivations for serving. One of them is guilt. Have you ever ever served out of guilt before? You know, they call you and there's no coach for your kid's t-ball team. And you just jumped in because you had to. Otherwise, they wouldn't get to. Otherwise, they wouldn't get to play because it's such a critical stage in their professional baseball development. (laughs) You know, sometimes we we serve out of guilt. You know, and we can justify things that we do. 
by saying, you know what, I can get that seventh Louis Vuitton purse because I'm going to give that first one away. And we, we were motivated by guilt. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not, that's not the way to be motivated. Another, another thing that motivates us is just force. You know, when we're in high school, maybe you had to do community service, or maybe you got arrested for something and that was your sentence, and you were forced into serving into community service. And that's not the way of the kingdom. You know, another way that, that happens is just through pride. We just want other people to know that we served and that we're good people, that we did some good things. And we just want people to know that we gave something, some time, some energy, some money, some resources to somebody else. And, and then another, another reason is that we feel like maybe there's a debt to repay to God and that, that we need to work really hard to repay everything that he's done for us. There's a quote that I read yesterday that was on uh, Muhammad Ali's tombstone. Muhammad Ali, who's what? The greatest of all time. Remember that? Muhammad Ali, um, on his tombstone, it says, Service to others is the rent we pay for your room in heaven. Now think about that for a minute. Because on the surface, I thought, that's awesome. Service to others is the rent we pay for our room in heaven. A little secret. The rent's already been paid. There's been a home created for us. John, and Jesus said this in John. He said, hey, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And man, when we think we have to repay God for everything that we do, we just live out of guilt and shame and um, duty and obligation. But we have freedom to serve a God who paid it all for us. And because he modeled for us how to serve, he gave his life as a ransom so that we could have eternal life. Man, the only response for us is if we have a grounding in that truth is to want to serve and to do exactly what he did because he modeled that for us. Service is only as sustainable as our grounding in the gospel. Service is only as sustainable. Man, we'll get tired of serving. We'll make serving an activity rather than an identity. But the price has been paid. Man, it's an honor to go last. It's an honor. Our entire life, our entire life becomes a response to the gospel. And what we know also in the gospel is that, I mean, it's not just our time and the things that we do, but it's our entire life. You see, you've been given certain gifts in life, certain, certain talents in life, and you're supposed to use them for God's kingdom. Over in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter was another follower of Jesus, actually a really good friend of Mark's. Um, but over, Peter writes a couple of letters, and one over in 1 Peter chapter 4, um, I'm going to look and start in verse 10. Peter writes this. He says, I'm in the wrong chapter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So when you have a gift, our, the goal is for you to use it to serve other people. Why? Because we are stewards. We are managers of even the gifts that God has given us. The, the things that we bring to the table, the strengths that we have, we are managers of those to use for the good of other, other people. He says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion and honor forever and ever. Amen. So listen, you have been created with certain gifts, certain talents, that, a contribution that you're supposed to make. And some of you are great teachers, and you can teach at any turn. And the reason why you're gifted to teach is to steward that and manage that to point people to God. Now, does that mean that's all that you do? No, it doesn't. Math could be in the, could be in the equation, too. 
but you use that to leverage it. Like some of you are great at making money. And it's, you can look out the window and see millions of dollars. And is there anything wrong with that? Oh, absolutely not. But what is wrong is when we use our gifts to get and not to give. Hello? Sometimes we use the abilities that God has given us and we think they're ours when they belong to God. And so whether it's the gift of teaching or making money or starting businesses or raising a family or being a mom or a dad or a spouse, like whatever it is we're supposed to be at, we're always doing it to the glory of God. We're doing it for other people. We're leveraging our lives to have influence. Listen, this is how, this is how you become great. And Peter wants to point that out. You know, there's more to life than this. And we've all felt that at some point. That, that deep down there's something haunting us that wrestles with us. It says, hey, there's more to your life than you're currently accomplishing. And could it be? Could it be that your life is trying to tell you, that God is trying to tell you there's more to your life than this life? There's more to your life than this life. In, in the church, if we just talk about the way we're to leverage our giftedness, to steward it and to manage it. You know, there's an analogy that a, a guy writes about in the Bible, a guy named Paul. And he says the, the church is like a human body. There's different parts. There's hands, there's noses, there's fingers, there's toes. There's some things that people celebrate and some things that people don't. And would you do with any part of your body? Like if I were to say, I'm going to cut your pinky off, it doesn't really do any good. Like there's not any part of your body that you wouldn't do without, except maybe some love handles, but who's talking about that right now? And in the same way, God has wired us crafted us. He's put us here together as Jesus people at Stone Creek Church that we would all play our part. And in our midst, there's, there is unlimited potential. Now, I am so grateful for all that God has done in the last 22 years. Man, just to see baptisms on a Sunday or baptisms, you know, every week or see people come to Christ or sponsor thousands of compassion kids or to see leaders go into ministry or launch campuses. We've just been able to see God do so much. But I really firmly have this conviction in my soul, man, that God's just not he's not done. And that these next 10 years are going to be the greatest years that our church has ever experienced. But it will only happen. As we all play our part and remember and realize, man, that we're gifted, we're gifted to give. And then we're managing our lives for the good of other people and for God's church. You know, there's a couple of different areas, just practically speaking, where we need to serve. Let me talk about serving at home. Serving at home. Hey, if you want a great marriage, if you're married or thinking about getting married and you want a great marriage, your one goal every day is to outserve your spouse. Outserve your spouse. Now, this is where I get pushed back from guys. They're like, come on, man, that's a little cheesy, corny. I'm a man. I don't do that. That's because you're not man enough to serve enough. And if, you, if we learn to serve our spouses at home, imagine what your marriage would look like. So think about the, the arguments that we have about who's right and what gets left out. And I just think about the way my wife serves me. As I said, or, you know, a couple of weeks ago I had hip surgery. And there's a lot of things you can't do when that happens. And she had to learn how to tie my shoes again. I mean, it was crazy. But there's so many things that I, I started paying attention to around the house that I don't do and I never do because she just does them. And I hope there's some things that I do that she doesn't do that she takes for granted because I just do them and she have to think about them. But like, what's one way you could serve your spouse this week? And it's not about, who, it's not about dividing up responsibility. And specifically for guys, if you walk in the house and you think something needs to get done, it's always your responsibility. Man, you're the leader in your home. And so set the tone. Man, we serve at home. 
You know, what about our neighborhoods? Um, we serve in our neighborhoods. That, that our neighbors should know that they can always count on us. We should ask them how we should serve. We shouldn't wait for an opportunity to serve. We should just ask our neighbors. They should know this is the kind of people that we are. We are servant-minded people. We're always giving our best, even in our neighborhoods. You know, this, um, so for some of you, like, maybe it's in your, your kid's school. And I do know there's a lot of people who like to volunteer in their kid's school. And the joke I always make is you want to be the room mom, not because you're serving, but because you're a control freak and want to take care and see what's happening. Uh, and that's not a bad parenting technique, if I'm honest. You can pay attention to your children. But how, how do we serve in schools? How do you serve in your neighborhood? On the sports teams, how do we serve? What does it look like that people know that we're going to go last so that they can go first? What about work? How can you serve at work? And when, when something comes up, the people know, I'll call Joe. I'll call Joe. He'll get it done. He always does. Man, let me go ask. Let me go ask. See if they can help me. What would it look like if we were just known as that? It's a great story around this about Dan Cathy. Is you guys, y'all may not know who Dan Cathy is, but you probably do. Uh, Dan Cathy is the chairman of Chick-fil-A. And there's a story. He goes to California to open up uh, a, a new restaurant. And while he's there, he meets with this guy named Rick Warren. Rick, Rick Warren wrote The Purpose Driven Life, which is the greatest selling book outside the Bible. So two, two fairly important guys, right? Two fairly great men. So they walk across the street to grab something to eat real quick while they had a break, and they walk into a Taco Bell. And so they go into, they go into the bathroom, and Dan Cathy, they wash their hands, and Dan Cathy grabs some paper towels. He begins to wipe off the counter where there's too much water. He begins to wipe off the floor where it's messy. And Rick Warren's like, what in the world are you doing? Like, this is your competition. And Dan Cathy says, you know, we teach our people to always leave every place better than you found it. And so I want to be the kind of person that leaves every place better than I found it. And you can just see how God has honored that no matter what you think of Dan Cathy. And what if we had that mentality? What if today you leave here, you walk in our bathroom, you just start cleaning it up? That'd be awesome. <laughs> but what if everywhere you went, you just had that mentality? Leave it better than I found it. And, and, and nobody but Rick Warren saw that. But somebody did. And it was God. And what if God honored that every time that we made ourselves into a servant, when it didn't seem convenient, seemed like nobody was going to notice, seemed like it was too much trouble, seemed like it, hey, 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 wasn't our job? What if we did it then? Man, we serve there. And then I want to talk about serving at church. Now, one of the things I, didn't want, I don't want to do is make this a volunteer sermon. And it's not. It's about our life. But what I do want to do is talk about how we will glorify serving in so many places. And we'll serve in Clarkson. Or we'll serve uh, somewhere else and we'll serve. But we down and dumb down how important it is to serve in the church. Now let me just say the church is the hope of the world. There is no greater, no grander, no bigger, no more important organization and organism than God's bride, the church. There is no other place that you will serve that's going to change lives for eternity. There's no other place that you're going to go last that's going to experience someone's eternity change forever. And there's no other place that offers lasting change. It is the church. So why wouldn't we serve at the church? The place that we're spiritually nourished and fed. The place where Jesus is doing some work. The place where our God is worshipped. Like why wouldn't we 
serve in the church? Why wouldn't we choose to go last at church and to put others first at church? You know, I believe that the church is the bright light that can rescue our country. I believe that it's the standard of truth that can lead people to true life. And why wouldn't we serve in the church? You'll notice that in your seat you have a card, and I'm going to ask you to pull it out. Um, And and there's different areas for you to serve in, and many of you already do this. um, But we have seen unprecedented growth in the last few months, and, man, with growth comes more opportunities to serve. So notice uh, there's areas for you to serve, and I won't go through all of them, but let me just point out what you're doing. Let's say you sign up to be on the connection team, and you feel like, I'm just parking cars. But let me promise you, when someone drives onto our property, within less than a second, they've decided if they're coming back. So what you're doing in the parking lot is you're actually breaking down barriers for people to experience uh, light in the midst of their darkness. Like, what about holding babies? You know, sometimes that can be fun until they start crying. (laughs) Or smelling, I guess. That's the second one. But when you hold a baby, what you're doing is you're giving a parent with a newborn or an infant or a young baby a, a, a one-hour break that they don't normally get to breathe and be quiet and to move out all the distractions from their life so that they can hear from the one who can save their life. Like when you sit down in a small group with a first, second, third, fourth, fifth grader, I mean, you're going to sit in a group with kids whose families may be going through difficult times, going through breakage and brokenness, and you may be the light of stability that's in their life. And when you serve on Wednesday night to come and sit with our students, let me tell you something. When they get married, you know who they're going to put on their invite list? You. You know, you know, you know who they're going to call when they get to college and they had to break up with their boyfriend? You. You know when they get married or when they have children or when they have high days to celebrate, who are they calling? They're calling you because the investment that you made in their life. Listen, this isn't just about volunteering. Man, this is about life-saving. Like, why wouldn't we do that? You know, when I think about some of the volunteers in our church, I'm just blown away. And I always uh, am amazed at the people who give so much of their lives, who rearrange their schedules to be here on a Sunday or a Wednesday night and make it a priority because the church is the hope of the world. So I'm going to ask you to fill that out, and then Sean's going to tell you what to do with it at the end of the service. What if you prayed every morning? God, what can I do for others today? God, what can I do for others today? Like, How can I get my eyes off of me and onto people? How can I make this thing called the Great Commission tangible, the Great Commandment? How can I make it tangible? Now, what I want to do is I just want to close with three quick stories from Jesus' life. Um, And I think it's going to characterize, again, just to reemphasize why it is that we serve. You know, as Jesus, all three of these are from the last week of his life. Um, The first one happens on what we call Palm Sunday. How many of you guys have heard of Palm Sunday? So, yeah, some of us. Palm Sunday is the last, is the day Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's the first day of the week. Now, what we know is that the last day of the week, or later on in the week, he's going to die, and then he's going to rise again. But we know it's a very important week. It's his last week here on earth. And Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Like, why would he do that? Well, in Bible times, donkeys were symbolic for humility. 
donkeys were symbolic for service. So as he's riding into this parade of people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, of people who are waving palm branches and throwing their clothes in front of him because they believe he's coming in greatness, he's coming to sit on his throne, he's coming to restore everything that's been broken, he comes riding on a donkey and he's sending us a message. And we serve a donkey-riding servant king. Now, the second story that we have is at the Last Supper. You know, it's uh, where we get our idea of communion from. Jesus has one last chance to sit down with his disciples. He's about to be betrayed. He's going to uh, be, uh, go to trial, and he's going to be executed. And so Jesus is having this Last Supper. And they walk in the room, and there's no one to wash the feet. Now, in that culture, you can only imagine a foot washer was important. Because you've been running around the dusty streets of this outpost in the Roman Empire in your Birkenstocks. And your shoes and feet are nasty and dirty. And so someone has to wash feet as you come in because everybody was barefoot. And you also kind of walked around the area where you'd be eating. And so when, they, when the disciples get there, there is nobody to wash feet. Now the servant who normally washed feet was always the lowest of the low. It wasn't someone who got paid a lot. It wasn't someone who's going to get tipped. It was always the one that was overlooked and neglected, and they couldn't find anything else to do. This was the only thing they could do, lowest of the low. So the disciples show up, and they realize there's no foot washer. So what do they do? They start fighting over, I'm going to wash feet. No, I'm going to wash feet. Peter's like, I'm going to wash feet. Now, if you know the story, you know that's not what they did. All the disciples show up, and they completely ignore the fact that there's nobody to wash feet. So after they gather, Jesus quietly gets up, walks over to where the wash basin would have been. He takes off his outer cloak, taking the form of a servant, and he puts it down. And then he drapes a towel over his arm that the foot washer would have had over his arm. And then he grabs the water and he walks over to his disciples, and he begins to wash their feet and to wipe them off with the towel because none of them would do it. You see, we serve a donkey-riding, foot-washing servant king. And then he carries his cross to Calvary, where he was executed, where he paid the price for us. Man, where he just carried that cross, hung on that cross, and was crucified like a common criminal. We serve a donkey riding, foot washing, cross carrying, servant king. And this is, this is our life. And sometimes it doesn't feel like it's fair. It doesn't feel like it's right. But we have the example in Jesus himself. How can I be the greatest version of me? How can I be the greatest version of me? Let's have one more story that I think captures it so well. Anne Lamont wrote this story in one of her books. There was a little girl, she's six years old. She had leukemia. Only thing that was going to save her was a blood transfusion. So they ask her eight-year-old brother, um, would you be willing to get tested to see if your blood matches your sister's? And he said, sure. And so he gets his blood tested, and it's a match. And so they ask him, hey, would you be willing to give some blood so that your sister could live? And he says, let me sleep on it. And so he sleeps on it, and he wakes up the next day, and he agrees to it. So he goes to the hospital, and they perform the transfusion. And while, they're, while he's laying on the table and his blood is dripping, He's just kind of quiet and his eyes were closed. And the doctor walks over to him and says, hey, how you doing? And he looks up the doctor and he says, when am I going to start dying? Because in his mind, giving blood was the equivalent of dying. 
but he was going to do it anyway. Like, and what if that was our mentality of life? Jesus is our passion, obsession, and motivation. Because Christ gave his all on Calvary, we should give our best every single day. We believe the church should be a beautiful expression of its people. We have been gifted to give, wired for work, and saved to serve. We don't just go to church. We are the church. Let's pray together.